don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 12. And today we're talking about 2011's Melancholia, directed by Lars von Trier, um, which was the the second of his depression cycle. Second installment uh, in between Antichrist and Nymphomaniac, Volume 1 and 2. So the, whatever, a four-part trilogy, Tetralogy, yes, I guess. I guess, um, yeah. So this I think, is... I, think, I guess Nymphomaniac's one film, and then... It was for, just too horny for, for one film. They yeah, had to split it into two. To release it, they split it into, uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> into the one with Shia LaBeouf, and then uh, and maybe he's in both of them. I haven't seen that. Um, yeah, I think he comes back in the second part. He's he's like a he's like a horny pony boy in the first half. He's a greaser, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> and then. Uh, uh, in the second Horny one, pony boy. in the second one, he's he's uh, like a business. You know, he's, he's a horny businessman. Business horny businessman. Yeah, risky well, business, risky you know, business. You got to grow up at some point. Go from a horny boy to a horny man. Yep. Um, and then our uh, horny robot in Wally's case. <laughs> yes. Uh, forever alone, forever horny. <laughs> the Wally way. So this is the only. And you were kind of shocked to learn this, but this is the the only Lars von Trier movie that I have ever seen. I did um, not know that. It's because I've never. We were just. I thought you you haven't seen Antichrist. No, I've just I've seen like little clips of the especially heinous parts on like articles about it, and Dude. then I've heard you and some others talk about it. Uh, Jensi just found Breaking the Waves on VHS at Goodwill, so <laughs> y'all come on over and. Uh, have, have a, to have give a 90s, that feeling. Yeah. 90s uh, depression night. But no, I just never really came across Funcher's stuff because it was, you know, it's not like it was ever on, you know, HBO or whatever. And, and it's especially weird, too, because you just are finishing up your time at a at an institution that uh, where the uh, Linda C. Badley taught, and yeah. she's obsessed with uh, Von Trier, wrote the book on Lars von Trier in that spent a lot of time with him apparently like interviewed him yeah is like personal buddies with him I guess yeah she told me or she she told the class that uh, she got an email so she had done interviews in Denmark with Lars von Trier and she got an email later from him before he was writing or when he had started writing Antichrist he knew he wanted to do a horror film and he apparently asked her to get a sort of sense of what sort of young people, because she was teaching horror film classes at the college, what young people found scary, like what movies they were watching, uh, like what what uh, they had a strong reaction to. And she said she sent him a list. The only one I remember on the list was Audition. Yeah. Uh, which is... Super Japanese, yeah. And uh, anyway, I thought it was cool that he, you know, she and, and and he were in communication about. It doesn't sound like a normal way for 
a, an artist to do <laughs> research on their next film. Like, hey, what's scary? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know. Those are, I guess, Audition is like one of those that gets cited a lot with like Suspiria mm-hmm. and all those like old, older, really well-respected horror films. The only movie I've seen lately that scared me in a non-jump scare... Hereditary. Yes. That, like, it was scared me on, like, a subconscious, like, primordial level <laughs> yes. was Hereditary, because that movie is so fucking frightening. Agreed. In a lot of different probably. ways. And is, like, deeply unsettling. Yeah. Uh, I, there's, there's probably no way to justify it for this podcast, but... We, <laughs> no. I, I just like talking about that movie because it scares me so much. Yeah, and it's just... Uh, Anyway, we'll we'll have to do a horror. We'll have to find some way to do a horror film at yeah. some point. Because I'm not like a huge horror guy, but when one's really good, like credit here is, I I enjoy it a lot. I bet uh, uh, Doctor Laura White would be a good person to ask. I'm like she's writing about like eco ghost stories. Uh, yeah. So I mean, there's gonna be. Uh, I mean, there's certainly layers to, you know, what a ghost story is, but uh, I bet she's come across some sort of eco-horror. There is a... And I can't... Like, I'm going to talk oh, about the this happening. movie. Oh, yeah, The Happening, of course. Um, I forget, like, it's going to be stupid because I don't remember the name of this film, and it's an Australian movie starting, starring uh, Martin Freeman, uh, the, the Hobbit. Yeah. And uh, so... He's in it, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's a, like a zombie post-apocalyptic thing set in Australia, hmm. and the whole point of it is that the, the Aboriginal people are, like, thriving and, like, killing the zombies, and they retreat to these sacred places and survive, and all the white people get turned into zombies and kill hmm. each other. Um, so it, that was an interesting movie. I wish I could remember what it was called. Uh, but Cargo it's called Cargo that's what it's called no, um, it, it was on Netflix I, I don't know if it still is weirdly enough Melancholia was on Hulu is how I watched it it was on Netflix for a long time and now it's not because um, it's a weird like the concept of the film is so deeply strange but also kind of perfect for what he's trying to do in the film you talking about Melancholia now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, I'm talking about Five Will Goes West, actually. <laughs> I'm uh, talking about Cargo still. No, no, no. Uh, but the, the the concept of this film is like Five Goes West is is like super unique, um, and really well executed, and it, it fits perfectly with this whole theme of just of melancholia, this kind of crippling depression, being done with the world kind of attitude. Yeah, it's 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 so weird because. Technically, it's an apocalyptic movie, end of the world, you know, Armageddon yeah. type thing. But <clears throat> almost every convention of the Hollywood apocalyptic movie is subverted. There's no, maybe <clears throat> most notably, you know, in comparing it to or contrasting it with, I should say, Day After Tomorrow, there's no sort of sociological spread, you know. Yeah, it's it's not like, oh, let's see what's going on in Beijing. Let's see if yeah. that that drunk guy in Beijing who hates his <laughs> wife, uh, let's see if he's okay. Uh, no, it's just, it's one uh, small portion of a family at a 
resort, an uh, eighteen-hole golf course, like a uh, country manor, almost. country like, manor. Yeah, the scope of the narrative is very much like narrowed to them, so we don't we don't know what's going on outside of this geographic area, right? And the uh, contact with the outside world is limited to references to the village, and not not the Amanda <laughs> Shyamalan film. Uh, now that's a good one, though. Oh, we talked about the village a little bit in yeah. the Captain Fantastic episode. Anyway, um, and to mentions of the internet and how um, John Kiefer Sutherland doesn't want his wife Claire, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, to scare herself by look, you know, getting on the internet too much. So it's very secluded, um, and like I'm, the point is that's very. Uh, subversive uh, of the big Hollywood apocalypse into the world movie conventions. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were so focused on this cast of like, well, I mean, at the beginning, so the first half of the movie is the wedding, um, and then the second half is when it gets down to just those four, five characters, I guess, if you count their uh, butler, manservant guy who's yeah. around. Um, and so we really get this intense, hyper-focused reaction to this, you know, worldwide catastrophe that's happening. It kind of, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. I have not. I meant to watch that because you mentioned it last week. It's, <clears throat> imagine this, imagine Melancholia, but it's like a Steve Carell comedy, like mm-hmm. good-hearted movie. It's, that's basically what it is. And it's. That, that film is has a, a similar kind of ending where it's like deeply sad and depressing and final but also kind of like weirdly hopeful in a very different kind of way yeah because the whole thing in that film is like we met and fell in love and so everything's okay with him and uh um yeah oh god I can't remember her name it's from, uh yep from to uh, me you Pirates, are perfect uh, yeah Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean um it's probably weird for people if they're listening to this and they know. And they're the just yelling, yeah. They're like, "God, I fucking hate these guys." <laughs> My memory is just ass sometimes. Uh, she's um, she's most famously in Domino. Uh, um, I get oh like we God. can name the movies she's in. Uh, I have to Google this because it's embarrassing. I wasn't. I was dangerous ready. method. I wasn't uh, ready Domino. to talk about her, so I wasn't. Dude, uh, give give me her initials. Give me her initials. KK. Jesus, uh, Kira Knightley. Yeah, Kira Jesus. Uh, anyway, yeah, Kira. Kira Knightley. I had, a, I had a, a friend who I sadly don't talk to anymore, but from just for no important reason. But she once wrote. Let's, let's uh, dig deeper. She, she once wrote a poem about her boyfriend's attraction to Kira Knightley, and how she didn't like Kira Knightley for that reason. And there was a line that said, "I think." I imagine making love to you would be like making love to a bicycle. Because <laughs> Carrie Knightley was so, like, skinny and, and bony looking. Hmm. In her opinion. Um, but, anyway. How um, did... Oh, Seeking a Friend for the Elsa. Yeah. Why are we doing that? Yeah, and that, and that, that film's also weird because it's Steve Carell and Carrie Knightley falling in love, which is one of that, that classic Hollywood trope of the man in his late 40s or 50s and the woman in her, like late 20s mm-hmm. falling in love um, but anyway uh, very different from 
similar kind of concept, very different uh, kind of way it makes you feel watching Melancholia. And we were talking about the the very beginning of it, which is that extended scene that feels like it lasts two hours on its own. That's like the slow motion, and it's kind yeah. of like a flash forward almost, or like a kind of a subliminal, subconscious kind of representation of yeah, things that are happening in the film. It's almost like a short film, uh, kind of a microcosm of the whole film in these sort of tableaus. Um, and it's it, it sort of, to me, it sort of looks like these scenes are kind of made to look like classical paintings. Uh, there's, the colors are really saturated and just kind of yeah. over the top. Um, Which is very like because von Trier's, wh- whatever the the group was called or like the oh the uh, talking about the dogma yeah I was gonna say the I'm doing it again where I mentioned something and then don't know what it's called yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but the the whole dogma thing where it's like you only use natural light and all that. and he's gotten away from that but that yeah. those opening kind of tableaus are, are very much the opposite of that where they're very composed and very like you said saturated looking. yes. Very, yeah, it's it's the opposite. They're uh, constru- highly constructed. There has to be post production, you know, because everything's involved. Hyper slow motion to where it's like almost unsettling with how mm-hmm. slowly things are moving. Right. And I just had like, the, so there's all these scenes, and one of them is the horse Abraham just like laying down slowly. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have the, the Ricard Wagner. Tristan is old, like blaring, and in my head, I just out of nowhere went, and the lion shall lay down with the lamb. <laughs> it was a very sort of biblical feeling to the yeah, whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and you have her with the uh, the gray yarn like draped on her body, which is what she explains to Claire, her sister, later. That's what she feels like, and you see it at the beginning where she's like trudging. Yeah. She even describes it as trudging, like with the. Yeah, that the image to me reminds me of dream, like uh, dreams I have where you're like really trying to run. I have, and you can't, yeah. you know, I think it's a common dream. People That's have. my most common dream, probably, is like running but not going, or like I'm wearing flip flops or yeah. some stupid yeah. thing like that. Um, um, can't imagine what that says about me, but <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not important. <laughs> no, definitely not. Move on. Uh, what's on Netflix? Um, I was going to say something. Oh, the there's a shot at the beginning of Kirsten Dunst uh, floating down a river. Yeah. Uh, in her her uh, bridal gown, and you see very quickly in that strange scene in the middle of the wedding where she's in the study and she's a, she arranges these art books very hastily. Uh, if you look closely, you see a painting that looks very similar to that scene. It's a someone in a bridal gown in a river. Uh, and I do not know enough about art and the history of painting to even have any idea what Von Trier is doing there or who he's uh, alluding to. But there's something there, and I'd like to learn more about it. <laughs> yeah, and, and we were talking before we started recording that, like, it, if we were good little boys, we would have gone and, like, read about a bunch of art and, like, figured out all of the references that he's making, but we just did not do that. Nope. And I, I don't regret it. 
<laughs> I kind of do. Like I said, I'm like weirdly just sort of starting to get into uh, kind of the history of painting, but uh, I haven't got there yet. I haven't does. got to the bride, bride in the river period. <laughs> I haven't, haven't. I don't haven't bought that coffee table book yet. <laughs> Brides and rivers. That that uh, Tashin book. Um, but it does kind of get to this idea of uh, the importance of art. And specifically talking about because I feel like Von Trier in this film is is talking about the importance of being an artist and the importance of art sort of within the film itself but also kind of of the film as he's making it this weird sort of implied meta commentary about what he's doing yeah the magic caves yeah you you know I saw this movie in the theater and uh I mean, what is a movie theater but a but a magical cave? You know, uh, <laughs> pretty much. And it it reminds me of that uh, fucking hell, Joseph Campbell. Uh, I thought it was going to be like Plato. <laughs> What's that thing where they're in the cave and they go? Yeah, like Plato's got. It's like, like an allegory. It's about a cave. <laughs> yeah, maybe like of the. Uh, but uh, no, Joseph Campbell's thoughts about movie theaters being kind of like cathedrals uh, sort of modern counterparts to ancient rituals which often took place in caves um, there's there's great speculations about those kinds of thoughts in uh, Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams where they the scientists tell him that it do, this cave that they found, the Chauvet Caves, that were discovered in 1994, uh, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that people lived in caves like this, but there's all this evidence that people enact, were, were there, and there are elements of uh, what they think is their mythology, like bear skulls and stuff like that. Uh, so I don't think uh, we can separate uh, the mention of magic caves from art in in melancholia, uh, and, and and we can't help say what I was just thinking like far future Werner Herzog, uh, where there there's a bunch of like anthropologists in a movie theater and they find like a cut out of the rock and they're like was this their god? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the rock in Baywatch. <laughs> they <laughs> yes. must have worshipped this man. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we, laugh, we laugh, but, I mean, isn't the rock our god? Sort of. Hashtag deep. Um, magic caves are art, therefore the builder of the magic cave, the one who, the only one who possesses the deep, deep uh, spiritual understanding of the world, um, hard fought is Justine who when the shit hits the fan she's the only one who really can can keep it together uh, because uh, her and her her mother seems to be there as well uh, and yet they're probably the two least likable characters in the movie oh yeah and, that, and that's what I was uh, talking about when you first got here and I was like I really fucking hate like I, I just cannot stand Justine's character through much of the film and it's a it, it plays on your empathy because you know 
that here's a person with a severe mental illness. Like she has very, you know, debilitating depression to the point where she can't even move. She just sleeps all day. And that's something that you should have, you know, empathy for. And you should, you know, not dislike this character for that reason. But then you add all this, these other things she does on top of it. And the fact that she does all this thing, all these terrible things to her family, to her husband, who she's apparently only married to for about eight hours. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't seem to really care about the effects that her actions, whether they're influenced by the others or not, have on those people. I'm honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen a more honest, just like brutally honest portrayal of real world depression yeah. than in this it's, it's because like it's narcissistic not, almost oh yeah that, that's so. that's and, and without getting too personal or anything uh, if you if you have ever been in the company of someone uh, who's actually depressed it is not like the commercial like it is like you said you you were sort of conditioned in a sort of educated liberal society to have empathy for it and in a sort of theoretical way you do but it it is a test in empathy not a not an automatic thing because there is nothing cute or or affective about it it's like i just i just really think that the uh depiction is so off-putting in the movie because it's so real. Yeah. It's like all of his, um, uh, even though I haven't seen them, I know like Antichrist has all this really, you know, visceral kind of close up, gory sort of body horror stuff. Mutilation. Um, and it's so unsettling because he goes to great pains to make it look realistic and, and yeah. so horrible. Well, that's sort of the same thing he's doing with her depression in this film is, it's so unsettling because you could see someone being like that in the, in uh, her sister's relationship where she's always sticking up for her and always like trying to help. And mm-hmm. the scene where she's trying to get her into the bath. Right. And then uh, Justine just kind of breaks down and can't do it. And she's like, well, we got some practice for tomorrow. Right. And it's just like, Oh God. It's so just like, you know, emotionally affected. And, and it's, it's a real relationship there because you do see, you know, the sort of, uh, their sisters and and so you see Claire testing the limits of her empathy but also failing because I think it's twice in the movie she says sometimes I hate you so much yeah. Uh, so yeah and back to the, the bathtub scene it, it's a real testament to Lars von Trier's uh, sort of vision for this and also Kirsten Dunst's performance that he could make Kirsten Dunst, fully nude, not sexy at all. Just like the least appealing thing. Yeah, it is Um, just sad. Yeah. Uh, In a film where she's naked a couple of times, at least. Yeah. Um, You get the the moon shower. (laughs) The the moon shower. Her, like, weirdly, like, coming on to this planet. (laughs) That's... Yeah. we can talk about that later, but yeah, this uh, this whole depiction of depression and it, and her mother is another uh, character. You mentioned that they're they're both kind of super 
hard to watch kind of characters because of the things that they say and the way that they act. And that whole relationship with her mother is so just like, it just deeply reinforces all these worst impulses where she goes to talk to her mom and her mom's like, just get the hell out of here. Just leave. Does I forget how she says it exactly, but she's like, it doesn't matter at all. No one cares. Just go. <laughs> when, uh, there's that one part where uh, John, Kiefer Sutherland, comes in to tell her he's missing, to tell the mom she's missing them cutting the cake, and she says, I wasn't there when she had her first sexual intercourse. I wasn't there when she, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, she's a... Your rituals. <laughs> right. Uh, but I think the point of that, uh, of... Uh, Charlotte Rampling's character is you sort of see where maybe where Justine is heading if the world wasn't going to end um, and you see someone who's already outside of all these sort of social fictions that kind of seem to be the triggers for Justine's depression. Um, so a, a lot of that thought I just said is influenced by Curtis White's uh, thoughts on melancholia in his book We Robots and uh, if it pleases the court I'll just uh, <laughs> read a little bit here may I approach the bench uh, the second situation and the second half of the film concerns the approach of a rogue planet on a collision course with the Earth. Because the two have already been shown colliding in the film's overture, there is not much suspense. The audience knows what's coming. What the audience may not understand is that the world, the world of human conventions, has already been destroyed in the apocalypse of the wedding. All the nice, comforting social fictions of marriage, status, and career have been bitterly laughed into oblivion. The contrast between the deluded hypocrisies of how we'd like life to be and the grim honesty of the depressive view of how things really are does not condemn the film's characters but ridicules them they are not evil they are a fragile tissue of preposterous fictions they are ludicrous they are afraid like children of the truth their childishness makes them ridiculous for example when justine's sister claire played by the uber brilliant charlotte gainsbourg suggests that they experience the end of the world on the terrace, embracing and drinking a glass of wine. The 48 Lafitte Rothschild, one hopes. That was bougie as hell. Uh, Justine replies that her idea is a, quote, piece of shit. End quote. I love that scene. Do you, do you want to know what I think about your plan? I think it's a piece of shit. <laughs> it's so mean. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of her... MO through the whole second half of the film is just shit on everybody else and I like what he says about all these uh, these aren't heroic characters they are like scared children mm -hmm. everyone except the actual child who's sort of an out of the loop enough because he still has that sort of wonderment of being a child that he's not freaking he, out quite he much. lives in the place he sincerely lives in the place that Justine and Claire are trying to create at the end. He's already there. He doesn't have to pretend. You know, he's in the cave, the magic cave of of childhood. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it seems like Von Trier saying 
that the, the magical cave is is kind of a recreation as an adult of that kind of sense. Uh, I think play, yeah, playfulness is a big uh, aspect of what he's trying to get at there. Uh, willingness to confront death and tragedy and total annihilation with a with a sense of play. Yeah, and there's a lot of sort of you know these psychological things happening, like the the fact that. Uh, Leo, right? The the child yeah. was a Theo. Leo, right? I think it's Leo. Theo's children, man. Um, that's what <laughs> I was thinking. But so Leo, he the whole time is encouraging uh, Justine to to play with him, to make caves with him, right? Calls her Auntie Stillbreaker, which to we me, were saying like we never really figured out what that. Yeah, was. he calls her Auntie Stillbreaker a few times. I thought the first time he said Deal Breaker, but I, maybe I just misheard it. I, which I, I guess that's part of whatever game it is they're playing, but this whole time he's like sort of urging her to, you know, create with me, like help create this world. Um, and in the end, it, that sort of ends up being what kind of doesn't really redeem her, it doesn't because no one's redeemed, everyone gets blown up. Um, but that is sort of what brings her back around to humanity kind of at the end. Here's uh, so, uh, something that's really interesting about. Uh, Leo, I think, or, or just the child, is that you you always you often see in the film his contraption that he builds. You know, the, the stick you put up against the chest with the concentric circles yeah. um, in the shots with the what looks like a many thousand dollar uh, <clears throat> yeah, giant telescope. telescope, and and we definitely need to talk about Kiefer Sutherland's character as the sort of scientific, rational, you know, in quotes, uh, enlightened. <clears throat> but you see that the kid who's just fucking around with a stick and some wire is actually, he because he's in this world of play, he actually has the tool to see the truth. You know, and, and it's his tool that his mom uses uh, that brings the real terror to her. You know, she's looking through the telescope at the planet and it's just like, oh yeah, you can sort of see in better detail what's going on, but you can't, it means nothing really. It's just, it's just details. But uh, when he lo- when she looks through the stick that he's brought her, uh, she shits her pants. <clears throat> yeah, and that's kind of, and it's weird that on the night when Melancholy is doing the flyby thing, and that's when uh, she thinks that it's going to collide then. Um, the way John, Kiefer Sutherland's character, calms her down is to give her this stick contraption mm-hmm. and say, well, look at it, and then in five minutes look at it again, and it's going to be farther away. And that's kind of what calms her down. Um, so there is that kind of idea that the somehow the, the child has this kind of innate sort of understanding of the world where it's not like a, a rational scientific understanding but it's sort of this like experiential like obviously you know I can tell that it's farther away therefore it's okay right kind of it's it, yeah it's about it's about human meaning as opposed to scientific precision you know what I'm saying like yeah. the telescope you're going to see more details but those details are meaningless when you look through his uh, his tool you 
you see uh, whether or not you're going to be okay, you know, uh, which is a really cool thing. And you, I think um, Curtis White's right about Charlotte Gainsbourg performance. Like she, she kind of nails apocalyptic terror. Yeah. In, in this weird scale of the story, you know, you just want like. I love the scene where she says, when it's when it's become clear that the planet is gonna hit, um, she gets her son, she gets Leo, and she gets in the golf cart. <laughs> We're going she to the says, village. Where are you going? She says, the village. And there's a a quick cut of her just kind of close, like a not quite a close up, but you can see her face very clearly, and she's sort of breathing very heavily, and it's just like pure animal terror. Um, and and it's like she's having this moment with Justine where she's she's sort of because re- Justine won't get on the golf cart with him and she's sort of having what she thinks might be the last moment ever with her sister and it's she uh, it's like strangely believable her performance and that's when Justine is like you know this isn't about the village or this has nothing to do this with has the nothing village. to do with the village it, it made me think of. Uh, Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Uh, his house is in the village, though. Which is, yeah, and the fact that the village is kind of where the rest of society is, I guess. But we, we never go there because we never leave. Yeah, it's kind of the archetypal village. It's just referred to, and yeah, it, it, we in our minds it's associated with like social, you know, culture. Yeah. Uh, and it's weird that like. I don't know if this is what's meant by this, but when they're out riding the horses, and Abraham, the horse, won't go over the bridge. Like, yeah. well, it's like he can't go past that point. He won't go into town. He won't yeah. go to the village. Um, I just well, that's that another thing. My little horse must think it queer. Uh, anyway, I'm thinking about Robert Frost now. Um, but yeah, there, it's that weird sort of... Um, it will all the animals in the film are kind of strange once the the planet gets close enough. Yeah, and that's kind of a kind of a trope uh, where the animals always know first. Yeah, when, when kind of like rats abandoning a ship. That, right, that or uh, it makes me think of the Sixth Sense. How the like the the dog in their apartment is always like scared. Like yeah. the, I guess dogs can see dead people too. <laughs> um, dogs and Haley Joel Osment. Um, so yeah, the, the horses and the stable are freaking out and restless, and then um, toward the end, all the bugs and like worms are like coming up out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Don't know what that is all about, but it's unsettling to look at. And then in those those kind of tableaus at the beginning, there's one where you get just like Kirsten Dunst's face, and then birds just falling out of the sky. I think that's the first shot of the film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, just kind of a close up on her, and then all of a sudden, these birds. It's it's really, it's kind of beautiful that opening five minutes. And um, I recommend that you watch Antichrist, but it starts with the same. Um, it's a slow motion, full penetration sex scene. Um, oh, well, and it's real, so you'll like it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's a black and white super slow motion kind of highly stylized uh, with classical music playing um, so part of his depression trilogy 
in style. I don't, I don't think Nymphomaniac employs that technique, but um, I was going to say something. I was say just that, like the film. Once the once melancholy of the planet gets close enough to Earth in the film, everything has that like unsettling glow to it. Everything's like blue mm-hmm. almost, um, which is weird because apparently like blue lights are supposed to be calming or something like that. Probably like a a light therapy thing, but in the film because the planet you know it's so many more times brighter than the moon, um, it's just everything has this unsettling kind of neon glow to it. Yeah. And they're all, the night of the flyby, they all, like, dress nicely, put on, like, dinner clothes, and then go out to look at this thing. Uh-huh. It's almost like getting well-dressed for the end of the world. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about... I want to talk about the golf course, or the fact that it's a golf course. And and sort of segue from that and say, uh, I feel like the golf course kind of is representative of, uh, I don't want to say nature, but just sort of man-dominated nature. You know, here's the, here's the nature we live in, this completely uh, curated, I mean, it's technically grass, but it's like, completely curated uh, immaculately overseen um, and so to obviously we've seen a t- sort of trope in these movies that tackle environmental issues of golf courses as you know emblematic of of what I just said m- men or <laughs> man dominating nature well no um, mostly men yeah yeah. Women, women just kept out of them a lot of sure. time. Sure. Um, so, what what sort of significance do you think there is to the fact that it's a golf course, like I said, that we've seen over and over in these movies, especially in uh, Captain Fantastic, Night, Night, Night Moves, or I think there might have been another reference somewhere. Um, it seems to me the question I really want to pose is how literally do we take this movie? Is this a movie about um, three people in a country manor and the world ending? Or is this more symbolic? I mean, obviously there's deeper levels to it than, than what I just described. But how how allegorical is it? How symbolic is it? Um, I think very. I think Curtis White in that little uh, snippet I just read is kind of on to it with the the wedding kind of being the same thing. The wedding half is the same, essentially the same story as the second half. It's almost like the same story told twice in a row in two very different ways. And it's the destruction of the world. And you just have the cultural world in the first half and the natural world in the second half. But it, but So the question I'm posing is, is it actually the natural world that we're uh, watching be destroyed? 
Uh, and, the, and the only reason I, I think it might not be is because it's a golf course. <laughs> I will say, like, the, the opening shot kind of ties into this, and, and I thought it was really kind of perfect, which is them trying to get the limo up the really, like, narrow gravel road. Right. And they can't get it because the road's not... Like, the, the curves are too sharp and the limo's too long, and they get there, and he's like, well, you're the one that wanted to take the stretch. Uh-huh. That kind of, and the fact that Justine, at least for the first half, is... Or, like, the first half of the first half mm-hmm. is very much trying very hard to put forth this idea that she's extremely happy with all of these extravagant things and this wedding that John keeps telling her like do you know how much money I spent on this wedding it was so much and this golf course has 18 holes do you know how hard it is to find that that kind of thing um so I do like this idea that that's the world that's being kind of shattered and in the first half it is shattered by Justine's just like hatred of it uh, that she's just going around just doing everything she can to just ruin everyone else's uh, image of what this wedding should look like. She has no respect for the social fictions that everyone else is taking comfort in. Yeah. And and so I feel kind of ambivalent towards it. It's like you can see the, uh, as Curtis White says, the, you know, the shallowness of it. But that doesn't mean you should be mean, you know. Yeah, and, they, and uh, that's it, that. I kind of kept running up against that, where I would think, yeah, she's fucking up this entire wedding and just like shitting on it all and ruining it. But in my head, I was like, well, fuck this. This wedding's like way too big and expensive and gaudy anyway. Right. But then Claire kept coming to her and saying, like, this is what you said you wanted. Right. And that's where I was like, okay, now it's like it kind of takes on this new this new tone. And I thought it was interesting. I think the last shot of the wedding scene is is Justine in the dance, like where in the room where the dance floor was, alone on a stack of chairs. Yeah. Like, and she's been leaving the crowded room all night to go be by herself. Yeah. And then once everyone's left, she's where everyone should be looking forlorn. Yeah. Uh, and so like you said you don't like her you see how selfish and um, just unreal her her expectations are just all out of whack um, yeah so so you see her shitting on these social fictions but you also see the shittiness of the social fictions the John Hurt's character uh, the father uh, he was picking up two women named Betty. Yeah, it, he it, calls her Betty, and he calls her Betty. It's just, it's just like all women are the same to him, you know. Yeah, uh, and there, that is a sort of like the the parent stuff. There's like a Oedipal kind of thing yeah. with the mother and with the father, where she just wants the father to, to stay the night. It's like then we can have breakfast, and then he just like bounces in the middle of the night and leaves a letter. I think a great moment is when Alexander Skarsgård's character, what's his name? Michael? Michael. Uh, he's giving his big speech. And he keeps saying, oh, I've never given a speech before. And he says the most 
cliche bullshit yeah. you ever heard. I feel like the luckiest man on earth. I feel like the luckiest man or on earth. Or I believe earth. I'm the luckiest man. I believe I'm the luckiest man on earth. And he says, I never thought I was going to have a wife so gorgeous. It's just like, yeah, you're really knocking it out of the park. But when he says, he finishes, he says, that's kind of it. And everyone claps. I, I really think that that phrase, that's kind of it, is Von Trier kind of winking and at us and saying, this, this, this is kind of the sum total of your romantic love. You're just, it's just these banal sort of cliches being regurgitated. That, that, that's kind of it. Yeah, but I will say that, like, and I, I thought it was important to point out that when he's giving that speech, he says, I believe that I am the luckiest man on earth. Because it kind of goes back to, uh, to Leo and, like, living in that child world where you can tell that Michael, like, he thinks that everything is going to be okay. That yeah. he and sticks in there and keeps trying, and he buys the nice plot of land and does all this planning, and that eventually she'll come around and they'll be happy and all that stuff. And by the end of the night, once everything's gone to shit, and it's clear that they're parting ways, he says to her, "It didn't have to be this way. It could have gone a lot different, you know." And she says. Uh, I almost said, isn't it pretty to think so? Uh, <laughs> what is that? Sun also rises? Yeah. Uh, no, she basically says, isn't it nice to... Yeah. It's, it's like, nice uh, to think it could have been, but it, uh, it's not. Um, it's nice to think it could have been, she says something, something yeah. like that. Um, and that, that scene where he gives her the picture of the garden, and she says, I'll keep it with me. I'll always keep it with me. And then she leaves it, you know, on the couch. <laughs> She's like... Good, goodbye and <laughs> just gets up and leaves yeah um, yeah that just and what, keeps... what, what you see that what I think those scenes are doing it, her what we are perceiving as her meanness is is I think Von Trier emphasizing just how far from this world she is how yeah. far from the social fiction she is and it's almost like you can almost forgive her. Uh, like like White says, the characters... Von Trier does not... Uh, Von Trier seems to have the same relationship to the characters at the wedding that Justine does. He does not uh, paint them as relatable or worth your empathy. They're just kind of ridiculous and grotesque in a lot of ways. Um, so you, you just really see how far she is at the wedding and then in her sort of subsequent um, meanness to her sister who's you know doing everything for her um, it, it basic, I think the basic tension or the basic difference that we're supposed to see between Justine and Claire is that Justine cannot handle life and Claire cannot handle death. You know? Um, because uh, Claire is just the put together, you know, very strong, very uh, assertive and proactive and all these things in, at the wedding. In, you know, this sort of uh, epitome of of social life and yeah. celebration and you know it's life and then she loses her shit when when 
when she noticed the planet was coming and Justine is just calm as a cucumber yeah I will say like there was there's a scene where like to me it almost like verged on valorizing Justine's depression almost and it's when she's talking to Claire and she says like I know that we're doomed like I know it's true and I also I know there's no other life in the universe I just know that it's true and she uses the she, beam. Yeah, she says, I don't think thing. you know that at all. She says, I just know things. 678 beings. No yeah. one else knew that or not. Yeah, it's a weird rhetorical move because, like, within the world of the film, you're like, okay, she's proven her point. But, like, if you step outside that, and you, you, that doesn't, pr- like, what? Nobody who, knows that. Someone yeah. who's always assumed the worst about everything. And then the world is literally coming to an end and there's nothing you can do about it. And then just sitting back and being like, told you so. And it's just, I, I didn't, I didn't care for that part very much. Well, and that's, that's where I see a little bit of, uh, interesting area in terms of Justine as a mouthpiece for Von Trier, who has said he was depressed when he wrote Antichrist. And this was just a few years later. So I don't know yeah. how deep in it he was. But it is kind of a glorification of this depressive artist. Yeah. Um, Which is, you know, a, a cliche that goes back, you know, hundreds of years. And that's that's why every teenager thinks that they need to be, like, sad and brooding if they're going to write poetry and that kind of stuff. But, or is it the other way around? It's like, they are sad and brooding, and it's like, oh, I'm supposed to write. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm like this. And it's also, like, a similar thing with... Uh, you know, artists and, and alcoholism. Like, mm-hmm. are they great artists because they drink or do they drink because their art makes them... I don't know. It's a sort of chicken or egg. For the I love... Argument. There's, a, there's a great uh, PBS documentary called To Write and Keep Kind by... It's about uh, Raymond Carver, who I know we both... I feel like we initially bonded over the, uh, the poetry of Raymond Carver. Yeah. If you've never read the poetry of Raymond Carver, go do it right now and stop listening. Um... <laughs> Don't come back until you're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, where someone, you know, Raymond Carver, famous, uh, almost as famous an alcoholic as a, a <laughs> writer, um, someone, the interviewer poses this question, like, was, it a, was there ever any sort of romantic aspect to this? And he's like, no. He's like, I never even thought about that. It's like an inherited disease, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And especially with his alcoholism, it's like... You know, earlier on when you're talking about, like, Faulkner, you can imagine Faulkner, like, sitting on the veranda at Roanoke, like, drinking, uh, you know, double pour four roses as the sun goes down. He's like, oh, yes, the light in August, like that that (laughs) sort of thing. Um, But with Carver, it's like, you know, getting... Getting sloshed at a party and like passing out on someone's lawn and shit. In the mid seventies and his like terrible, yeah, yeah, uh, like almost dying and like it just, yeah, it's nothing not sexy clever. about it. And and he didn't. I mean, he published a few things, but he didn't. He got way more uh, prolific when he quit drinking. Yeah, especially and, like and for way more poetry, like almost exclusively yep. poetry at that point. Yep. Um, and his poetry is like. Like, this is a digression. We'll come back to Melancholia, but... Shiftless. Uh, read the poem Shiftless by Raymond Carver, if you've never read it. Yeah, and it's just like, his poetry is, to me, always seemed to be, like, the more authentic view into, like, who he is and sort of his values and stuff. Because, you know, the whole thing with his fiction, you hear everybody say this of a, 
Gordon Lesh or Gordon Leash, Lesh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, his editor like had a really heavy hand, and like there is no Raymond Carver without his editor right. and all that sort of. Which you know you can you can believe in that as much as you want to. I think those stories are great no matter how they came out. I agree. Um, yeah. But his poetry seemed like closer to his actual like this is what's going on inside of his head, mm-hmm. um, and it's really incredibly. Good. And there's a lot of overlap too. Yeah, uh, between the it seemed like really. some sometimes the same uh, subject matter. Like right. he he would he would have you know something in his life would happen. He would write a short story, and five years later he'd be thinking about it again. And he'd write a poem. You know. Yeah, and so you can tell it's definitely like that's his voice. Like that's what he sounds like. Yeah. Um, but it kind of to, to talk about his life a little bit kind of does come back to melancholia, I guess, because or I'm going to try to make it, uh, because you have this guy who's known for these just, like, wrecking ball, just, like, depressing stories of these couples falling apart or, you know, whatever maybe. I mean, I, I just think of uh, the end of what we talk about when we talk about love, when they're all just sitting around getting drunk and then, like, the light's going, or the sun's going down and it's getting dark and they're just sitting in this room as the sun goes down. Um but then yeah. toward the end of his career, he has this turnaround and he's not, he doesn't become like sunny and hopeful, but way more like introspective and like mm-hmm. curious about things, or at least that's, that's how it seemed to me. Yeah. And it's weird that we're talking about Raymond Carver with this uh, movie, but I'm just now thinking one of my favorite stories of his is called Why Don't You Dance? Yeah. And the message, if, if you want to say it has a message, uh, is is essentially what the mother character, Charlotte Rampling's character in Melancholia, says in her speech at the wedding, is uh, the reception. Enjoy it while it lasts. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because yeah, in the story, you see the young couple and they're getting really great deals on this uh, the stuff of this guy middle-aged guy who's got all his shit out on the lawn um, they think it's a yard sale but it's really it's clear that some sort of domestic fallout has happened and uh, he's just giving away all his shit drinking whiskey uh, yeah yeah and it's it's basically he, he puts on an old record he watches this young couple dance why don't you dance like soak it up because it's yeah this, this is what it leads to uh, became the Will Ferrell movie Everything Must Go which was not terrible but wasn't I wrote a I wrote a paper early in in grad school about the adaptation of Why Don't You Dance and and just the sort of the commercial aspects and how how movies have to um, give a clear kind of uh, narrative arc and have some sort of redeeming message and yeah. Basically, I'm I'm making I, I'm making the general argument that books are better because they're not <laughs> as beholden to. Yeah, you can be more. Uh, uh, I was gonna say ambivalent. I don't know if that's the right word for it. Um, you can be honest, more ambiguous, <laughs> because be that's honest. what life is like. Yeah, and there's just not as much at stake in a four-page short story as there is in a you know multi-million-dollar yeah. Will Ferrell movie. Yeah. I will say like what we were talking about earlier the the depiction of alcoholism in that film is not very glamorous like they Will Ferrell tries his damnedest to make it look like he's you know his life's being ruined by alcoholism but it just kind of looks cool though too where he's like on the lawn like floating in the pool and yeah. stuff 
Um, and then later on when he like steals PBR tall boys from a gas station, you're like, okay, this is kind of not yeah, it's just kind of fun anymore. Kind of a caricature. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was. Uh, I do not like that movie, and <laughs> I don't. You know, whatever. We're getting off t- off topic. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Raymond Carver is one of these uh, diggers of magic caves, right? Sure. Um, so let, let's talk. Strangely, I don't think we've talked much about um, John. Kiefer Sutherland's character yeah. as we've, we've got on our whiteboard here mental illness and rationality um, obviously Justine being the uh, having mental issues and Kiefer Sutherland's character being the embodiment of a kind of scientific rational enlightened you know he's like an amateur astronomer it seems um, yeah it's like incredibly rich for some reason that we don't really ever learn. Yeah, I guess he's a golf course maker <laughs> slash country manor operator. A, a, a golf a golf master, the <laughs> golf plantation. Um, but yeah, so he he's definitely on that end of rationalism and rationality, and um, just the scene where he comes in uh, to talk to Claire, and she's very kind of like despondent. He's like, "Did you go online again?" <laughs> This is like that's how I feel every day. Of like, are you sad? Did you have you been online again? Um, but he's the whole time saying, you know, the scientists are saying that it's going to miss us, and she says, well, not all the scientists. And he's like, well, all the ones that know what they're talking about, and it's going to be fine. It's a it's a monumental occasion. You should be happy you're here to see it. Um, I love how the websites that they show you briefly are just like the most. They just look so shitty. And the way she types in all caps, like, pecking, it was very sort of, very strange. Yeah, it just looks like some sort of cheap blog, you know. And and I'm not I'm not criticizing, like, the filmmaking. I think it's very intentional. Yeah. It's, supposed, it's not supposed to be, it's not like the Washington Post or something. It's that called, like, the website's called, like, The Dance of Death. Like, yeah, Earth melancholy. and Melancholy of the Dance <laughs> of Death. Yeah. It's got the chart that she prints out for, well, yeah, and, like, printing out a website is a very, like... 2002 thing to do <laughs> yes um, so she can show it to people I guess yeah um, because back then the internet was like still a metaphor for books you know <laughs> yeah. like, um, and then people realized like oh it's its own thing you know I, yeah. I, I remember this is a weird digression you don't have to comment on but I remember when I was like 10 thinking that Encarta the encyclopedia was the internet <laughs> because I heard people talking about the internet and I knew it had something to do with the computer and we had this like encyclopedia yeah. and I would like look stuff up on it to write papers in fourth grade or whatever. Like CD-ROM thing. Yeah. And uh, I just thought like they would talk about all you know all the information everything was on the internet I thought cool you know it's like an encyclopedia yeah. on a computer. Yeah. <laughs> um Little did we know yeah. that before too long it would have Gangnam Style <laughs> and all this other stuff. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, right. so John so, and yeah. Yeah, so John is very much trying to be the voice of reason, and then it comes to pass uh, that he himself has sort of realized that, like, we're all kind of fucked anyway, um, and has been kind of lying and trying to, like, cover over his doubt with, like, being, you know, assured and and saying like 
no, of course not. Like all the numbers and you know, with with uh, you know, it's, equations it's, of this magnitude, you you have to have margin for, doubt, for error yeah. and all that it's, stuff. It's an optimism uh, with an agenda. Yeah. yeah, I think, which is not a ridiculous way to portray a, a contemporary man of science. Um, yeah, there's no, there's nothing likable about the truth that a planet is on its way to destroy everything, um, which I think has some some relevance to environmental science for sure. Um, but then he takes some pills when when he realizes that it's for sure the the world is going to end. He goes and gets the pills, kills himself in the horse stables. And so it's almost like the the he, I mean he does the rational thing. He's just trying to experience the least amount of pain. Um, and I guess it probably works. But you see that's just sort of hyper rational. There's no sort of duty. He doesn't feel any sort of responsibility to his wife, to his son, uh, to anybody except his own, you know, his own pleasure or lack of pain. Yeah. And even earlier in the film, you see him uh, when uh, Justine is like in the in the stables, like brushing the horse, and he yeah, he shows up with their butler, and they're like unloading all the stuff from the truck, and he's like, "This is in case the planet." gets closer than we expected or whatever like don't tell Claire because you know how she is about these things and you can tell like even he is starting to doubt it and his reaction is well I can solve this problem like I can throw money at this and get the supplies and we'll all be okay it kind of, it kind of reminds me we talked about one, one episode I think it was the Clint Eastwood one about the discrepancy in the Trump administration about how it's kind of the military is like totally on board with climate change and is trying to prepare <laughs> you yeah. know, taking all these precautions, or they are at least trying to figure out how to how to navigate the uh, thawed it, Arctic. <laughs> yes, exactly. All that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't want to make the. I don't want to be mistaken for making them seem like they're on top of things. Yeah. Uh, but they acknowledge its reality and and are going to try to deal with it. Uh, and yet, I guess you know Donald Trump, total denier. Yeah. Uh, and so you see John kind of paying lip service so that nothing's going to happen. But behind the scenes, he's kind of preparing yeah. for the worst. So John is the U.S. government. Yeah. <laughs> and Von, Von Trier said so in, a, in, a, <laughs> in an interview. He said, oh, yeah, John's the government. I don't know if you saw this, but Elizabeth Warren had a, a tweet that got a lot of backlash because... Who did? Elizabeth Warren. Oh. And she said something like, uh, climate change. We need to deal with climate change to make sure that our military is able to succeed in the future or something. So it's basically her saying, like, we need to put solar panels on tanks, that, that sort of thing. And she got a lot of pushback from people on the, the left, obviously, because that's a terrifying idea that you you say, oh, yeah, you know, the U.S. military might be the, the world's number one emitter of, of uh, CO2 and, and other horrible things. Um, but we need it, so let's all just try to figure out how to make it a little bit cleaner so we can keep droning Pakistani right. weddings, like that that sort of stuff. Prius tanks. Yeah, let, yeah. let's uh, get Toyota to make a Prius tank so we can, um, you know, bust into 
uh, you know, Tehran. And efficiently. Just, yeah, efficiently. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that was my, my mini rant about that Elizabeth Warren. You know, and I like Elizabeth Warren just fine, but she's not my ideal candidate. I would vote for her if it was her, but... Oh, yeah. Obviously. Um, she's like... You know, I'm a Bernie bro, so it's like way up there. And then, and then she's kind of down the list a little bit, but still a fine candidate. Yeah, I don't like that she was at one point a Republican and then switched over. Yeah, that's a, that's a little. I didn't even know disconcerting. That. Yeah, like back in the '90s, I think. We all dabbled back then. Anyway, um, so yeah, like I think John is very much a sort of intrusion of that kind of materialistic sort of socially performative world that you see at the beginning and he stays that way throughout and, and just something I noticed is the way that he talks to his son is very like it's kind of like it, it's not it's like he's doing an impression of a father yeah he's like, it's a like a leave father. it to beaver sort of thing of like he's like takes him by the hand he's like going to take, take he's like come on my boy <laughs> like that sort of thing and he dresses like an Asshole! Yeah. You, did you notice this? this yeah. Like the, when he kills himself, he's got this like three-piece suit on. It's like tweed from the nineteen twenties or something. It's like are you going to a to a. It's like Colin Firth and a serious man. <laughs> yes. Uh, or a single man. A single, which, man. a single man. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a freaking awesome movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's very much like he, he's put there to show you how kind of absurd that kind of attitude can be in the mm-hmm. face of something like that and then the two the two sisters are kind of opposite ends of either being completely accepting because you've always sort of been in favor of the end of the world um, and then being completely terrified which is I think the reaction of I think Claire is very much like the everyman kind of representation of how people would react yeah yeah Claire Every woman. I, yeah Claire I think is how we sort of ident- we identify with her both at the beginning with her patience with Justine and with her terror at the running through the, the hell storm with her child which is right. just the, the most action the film had probably um, because you haven't seen Antichrist you probably wouldn't have picked up on the line where you were talking about how sort of calm Justine is and how she's just like yeah bring it on whatever the world's ending when she says the earth is evil uh, yeah. that is essentially the subject of Antichrist <laughs> uh, like why why is na- nature is the devil essentially um, oh and women are part and parcel with nature uh, yeah, it won a bunch of so, like anti awards because it was like the most misogynist film ever made. So Von Trier is going to run for Congress in Alabama. Is what you're saying? <laughs> uh, you can tell he was depressed, and there's all these like weird Nietzschean things. Um, like, isn't there a lot of like uh, sort of not Nor like Norse kind of myth- not Norse mythology, but like Celtic or some weird like yeah he's old European mythology thing. He on. is doing a lot of stuff. You, I mean, you see it in Melancholia with the astronomy, yeah. uh, but the name Leo um, and Justine's fixation on planets and things like that. And there's a lot of sort of pseudo astronomy stuff 
going on in Antichrist too, where it's like there's these constellations, like the three beggars, and it's like a, a deer and a fox and something. Yeah, else. That's where like, you get the chaos reigning. Yes, that thing. is what the fox says. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, there, there's all these sort of like almost. It reminds me of like what I was saying about the websites. It's like these alternate sort of pseudo pseudo mythologies. It's like not quite the mainstream thing. It's like like the website's like someone's weird blog, yeah. and the the constellations or some yeah. maybe some made up thing. It's not even, but but it's explicit in Antichrist. She says at one point, or uh, what's his name, uh, Willem Dafoe says. Those aren't even real constellations. Like those aren't even. You know, you're just making this shit up. Um, so I don't really know what's going on with that, honestly. Uh, but that's uh, one good thing about the uh, melancholia and uh, antichrist is they do. Uh, they are conducive to rewatching if you can stomach antichrist. I think I'm sure it's deeply misogynistic, but there is. It's also uh, it's it's also hard to understand in one viewing exactly why that is. Yeah. And in melancholy, I think um, I don't know. It's, it's one of those films where you just sort of have this. Um, it's really good at evoking emotions that you're like unclear why you're having them, and you have to like go back and re-examine it a little bit. Like like we were talking about with uh, Justine and like why why is she so irritating? Why do I, like, I should feel more empathy toward her? Why don't I? What's going on here? Um, so I, I could see, like, going back and watching it again and, and, and picking up on some things. Um, I'll say, like, we were talking before we started about, about Zizek, who loves Melancholia mm-hmm. and has talked about it a lot. There's a lot of YouTube videos of him going on about it. There's a lot of YouTube videos of him going on about everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, if he's seen it, he's talked about it at length. Uh, but he there's like a short clip of somebody asking him what are your five favorite movies and the first one they name is Melancholia and he says uh, you know because it's you know I'm a I'm a pessimist and so for me the end of the world is a is a good thing <laughs> uh, which is kind of Justine's attitude in the film of the world is evil what we what we started to talk about with the golf course what the question I pose is so if we get away from a literal interpretation of it, is is the destruction of the world at the end, is this the destruction of the bullshit social world we see destroyed with the wedding as well? You know? It's kind of like, it's sort of like, um, so the whole planet's being destroyed, therefore everything's being destroyed, right? So if you break it down into this dichotomy of like the natural world versus this constructed kind of social world, and both of those are, are ending, then it kind of is left up to the individual. Which one of those do you mourn? Do you mourn the loss of the natural world, or do you mourn the loss of your social connections? And I think a lot of Claire's fear in the movie comes from this idea of society's ending. She even says to uh, Justine at one point, like, where will Leo grow up if there's no Earth? That kind of thing. And, and because you know she's tied to her son, she has this very sort of strong connection to this war, this life that she's built with her husband and her family, whereas Justine seems kind of since she thinks all that's bullshit anyway, she's kind of more worried about kind of the natural world, and it kind of 
helps me understand a little bit the scene where she's just kind of like laying naked under the glow of melancholia and like is very into this planet like yeah, that's coming it's, to crash it's, into it's kind of eroticized and you know that's why like her only friend seems to be the horse <laughs> that kind of thing like she's she's very much the only one that's paying any kind of attention to the natural world I and mean, she's the one that looks up at the stars at the beginning and is like well which one what's up with that one? Oh, it's right. gone now that kind yeah. of thing um yeah, and it's and it's in a personal way, whereas with John, it's it's just in a scientific yeah, kind of like how can we chart this? It's a hobby. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so, and so you see. So so, what is it that Justine has that allows her to be? to be the one that can construct these magical caves. Um, because what does Leo say? He says something like, you know, Dad says there's nothing we can do or... What do you something say? Like that. Dad told me that there's nothing we can do. And Justine says, well, if, if your dad said that, he forgot about the magic <laughs> yeah. caves. And so in the allegorical reading the sort of scientific rationalist has forgotten about the world of art and it's yeah yeah um no yeah, I like that um and just the I don't know the, going back to this idea of the whole thing being set on this golf course it's kind of funny that you know during the wedding Justine is just like leaving randomly and like going and out on the golf course and walking around and pissing on the greens and all that kind of stuff. Nailing that uh, dude. Nail, yeah, in the sand trap, which yeah. I thought was a good, like, symbolic move. Um, <laughs> both in the sense of, like, her, like, kind of like an error, like a, f- but in, the, in her case, one that she's very much, like, meaning to commit. <laughs> right, right. Um, and also how it's, like, not welcoming and, like, the worst place to have sex would be like in a sand trap. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't in the open. Like what? There's yeah. That's one of the worst places I can think of. Yeah. Um, so it, it was kind of interesting that she spends a lot of her reception kind of defiling this golf course in different ways, um, and she goes out into it as if she's like, you know, wandering in the wilderness, but she's like walking around on this manicured mm. green and, um, you know, looking at the stars and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you, I don't know that we ever see anyone playing golf on the golf course. No, I, I don't guess. think so. Which is realistic. Like, if the world was ending, I don't know how many guys would be out there shagging some balls. Um, I hate golf so much. Yeah, I, I can't. I, I played a game once because I was, you know, had some friends that were really into golf and uh, had a spare set of clubs. And like, oh, it'll be a lot of fun. And it was just, like, fucking miserable. And, I like hit a dude's house on accident and it's just awful. And you know, not to mention that the sort of talking about golf courses earlier, I, I kind of made a note where I wrote golf course equals pinnacle of man's folly. Which are like the worst thing we do as a species is, is make golf courses. I, I remember Wendell Berry has something about golf and jogging as has like what work like physical labor has been reduced I think he calls them purely consumptive activities golf and jogging just like 
this is totally meaningless. Yeah. This is the this is the life of the body now. Yeah. You, your work is you sit at a computer screen, and and you have to, your your body's life is golf like, and jogging. You, your 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 quote unquote work literally damages your body because you <laughs> sit down all day, and then you have to try to repair the damage through actual you know physical work. Right. It, I do. You know, I have nothing against people that work out. I've I've like worked out and tried to stay in shape at several points in my life and uh, not currently but need to get back to doing that but I'll like drive by the gym you know here in this in, in my apartment complex uh, that is our, our headquarters and uh, I'll see people like in there working out like lifting weights or whatever and I'm just thinking like it used to be that you would just do that like out in the world right. <laughs> you'd be out you know hoeing a field or whatever and, and you'd get all the exercise you would ever need and now it's like you have to find time to squeeze it in and right. sometimes you're like I'm, I'm too tired to exercise I'll, I'll do it tomorrow uh, to me because I know a lot of people that work out you know it's like a thing they do and uh, th- to me it just seems like there's this weird displacement it's like there's something a little bit self-flagellatory you know in their sort of puritanical you know it, it, it's almost like instead of moral perfection they're after like physical perfection it's like that yeah. that puritan instinct has been like concretized and displaced burn. you know it's like I've got to earn this I, I don't know they just got to put themselves through this weird pain I, I don't know it, it feels very ritualistic and and, and I like I like physical activity as much as the next guy, but uh, not uh, in that sort of self-flagellating <laughs> way, like like you see, like with like CrossFit. I don't know if oh, yeah. CrossFit's its own like yeah. troublesome. Well, that's thing. that's very in keeping, I think, with the sort of sort of contemporary orientation to it. It's this. But we've either talked about this type thing, like in person or on the podcast at one point. But CrossFit is like a replacement for church. Sort of a, yeah. a place you go to be with others who are like-minded. You right. all have this one thing that you're very like single-minded about accomplishing. Well, that, that goes right along with my puritanical thoughts. Then, yeah. yeah. And uh, the, if you don't show up to work out, they like call you. You're like, hey man, why aren't you here? Yeah. Um, yeah. Very weird. Although I will say, like, exercise to like try to improve anxiety because if you go to a doctor and tell them you're depressed, they'll tell you to work out. That's kind of like step one. Because um, yeah. it's it's free for them if you start right. running and feel better. Well, and and that uh, I think that's an important thing, and I'll tie this back into melancholy and this whole podcast. Is there's a there's a mention in uh, First Reformed when he when they go on the bike ride. There's a curative power in exercise, but uh, but I think just the fact that exercise is even a thing like you're saying like this used to be intrinsic to your day it's a, it's a thing with a very negative connotation for most people like it's it's difficult people don't want to do it and, well it, it just used to be integral to the work you were doing yeah. um, and it's really a test the fact that exercise exists is really a testament to how alienated labor is um, and, and how it almost suggests that there is kind of a there's a way of doing things in the world that is conducive to human health 
in the full sense of the word uh, and a way of doing things that is not conducive to it. And so now we, we have this sort of work culture, employment culture that uh, is clearly not in keeping with that health. Um, yeah. And there are jobs that are still kind of like that. I know like years ago when I was uh, stocking shelves in a grocery store, it was very like physical labor you know, lifting 24 right. packs of water and stacking them on shelves and shit like that. How, um, did, how did we get here? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, we were talking about Fitness, the golf course. And, golf course. But it oh, does kind golfing, of Golfing, jogging. Yeah, it does sort of fit into this um, idea of how we've taken things that used to just be, you know, free and available and out there in the world and we've, we've made them so manicured and so sort of, you know, f- false in the way that they're constructed, that they seem sort of silly. So people will be like, I can't wait to get out to the golf course and, you know, be outdoors and be in nature when really you're kind of the farthest thing from it. Right. Uh, and then people like... It's almost more dishonest yeah. because it's outside. Yeah. You like know? people walking on a treadmill instead of like going and walking up a hill and like seeing stuff, right? Uh, which is, you know... You don't always have access. And now, to and now they, you know, there's TVs in front of everything, and it's like, why do you, why do you want to do something if the whole, if to, if to do it, you have to distract yourself <laughs> from realizing that you're doing it? Like, how miserable does that sound? And the the treadmill in the gym here has there's one that has a screen, and you can set it to like different outdoor settings, like running on a beach or. A, and I made the joke after Trump got elected that I really wish one of them was like a blasted hellscape and you're like being chased by like road warrior bikers and you have to like run away from them or they're going to take your skin. I'm sure that's a thing by now. Yeah, it's, it's kind of strange uh, the links that some people have to go to to, to exercise or to like, and you know, exercise has a whole another connotation of like the asshole exercise culture of like if you're not getting up at 4 a.m. to run six miles you're a piece of shit that kind of thing which right. is like also not healthy right yeah and that's the thing about things like CrossFit too in a lot of ways they're not healthy they're they are you just like separate your shoulder yeah the giant tire terrible for your joints and things like that yeah it's just a weird sort of exaggeration or bastardization of fitness it's not even but it, it, it kind of fits into melancholia <laughs> to shoehorn it back into the film. Uh, this idea of these things that have been so so fabricated that they just like ring false. And so uh, the way we, we're talking about CrossFit taken to a very far extreme is the way that Justine feels about everything. Like literally every like when uh when she so after the wedding um we get into the second part of the film that's focusing on claire and john is on the phone he comes in it's like your sister can't do anything for herself and she has to like plead with justine to get in the cab Mm -hmm. all she has to do is get in the cab and it's going to take her to them um so the thing where like the world is so she sees the world as being so incredibly pointless that's like why do anything Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of like 
it's also sort of Holden Caulfield taken to an extreme. Like, all these people are phonies. Right. Um, and so that's what makes the end kind of redemptive, right? When she is like, I'm going to put on a fake smile or, like, I'm going to act one last time for the benefit of this child who doesn't, right. you know, doesn't deserve this, basically. Right, and that's the only time you see her have any real emotion or empathy is when she's hugging Leo at the end because he's he's calm as a cucumber, uh, and you you see while the world is ending because he lives in the magical cave, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's the only time you really see her upset. She feels sad that this sort of you know little innocent life is over. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. So it's even though the world is ending and they all get incinerated, you know, like a wall of flame. Uh, it, it it is kind Halo, of yeah. yeah. It's very metal. Uh, but they have. It, we were talking about how I forget where I saw this, but Von Trier said something in an interview where it was kind of he kind of jokingly says it's the closest thing he's had to a happy ending. Um, you know, he's he's not wrong. Like it is kind of as uplifting as it could be given the context in which it's happening. Yeah, especially given the the ending of Antichrist where the Ubermensch rises up from the woods and the and the thousands of uh, dead women walk to follow their bright shining uh, male leader or something. It's so fucking weird. It's not a happy ending. Um, but yeah, and, and it's certainly a happy ending if 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 it's read allegorically as the end of the false world, you know. Yeah. Um, and what I was going to say about Justine not being able to do anything for herself is, I think you you see you know what she believes about the sort of social world, how much bullshit it is, and. It's almost like her depressive state is compensation for how much it, it just and exhaustion from how much effort she has to put in to seem normal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and so that all of that smiling and the sort of cliche romantic thing she has to say to her fiance and all these things result in her because it's not just she, it's not that she's not able she's she specifically mentions how tired she is you know it's just like she's exhausted from living in this world um, and I, I know exactly how she feels because I uh Got up really early this morning. <laughs> I get and, it. I'm woke. And there's also uh, it's during the wedding where where John comes in, <clears throat> and he says like, uh, he's like, oh, you know, everything's fine as long as we have a deal, and the deal is that you're going to be happy about this right. because human emotions can be negotiated. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the refrain that everyone has as they keep telling her like, be happy, like mm-hmm. you should be happy. Make sure that you're happy, right? That kind of stuff, and, and because her, they have something at stake there. They're, yeah, they're they still fictions. Well, I, I just mean and all their time and 
blood, sweat, and tears. But in, in psychological health, yeah, you know, like, their social fictions are, are still fictions too. They just don't see it. You think know? of like what a massive bummer it would be to attend that wedding and like see the the groom like leaving at the end of the night. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and you know she makes everybody wait for like hours while like they're late, and then she decides in the middle of it to take a bath. <laughs> and just like disappears for a while yeah. Um, so yeah it's very much a, a bummer um, it, something about the wedding that was just sort of ostentatious and weird is that they had the soup like soup wagon mm-hmm. when uh, Stellan Skarsgård his character Jack which is her boss is like talking to her and he's like we have some onion soup with me, and there's like a weird like soup wagon outside that people are standing around like eating soup. That is weird. I don't uh, weird. You don't remember that? that. <laughs> and he like uh, that's when she she tells him that she thinks his job is bullshit and that oh, he's a yeah, joke, yeah, and then he yeah. like throws the bowl like against the side of it. Let me just say, I think maybe my favorite line in the whole movie is Stellan Skarsgård's first line when you first meet him as the boss. He stands up to give a toast. And he's clearly just hammered. And his first line is, God damn it, Justine, listen to him. <laughs> like, what a way to introduce your uh, toast at a wedding. God damn it, Justine. He does a really good job of playing that sort of, like, blowhard asshole boss character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with the dude whose name I don't remember, who's like, he's going to get fired at the end of the night if he doesn't get that... that uh, tagline. Tag, yeah, the tagline from you. I want to say Brady Corbett. Is that right? No, I'm the actor's maybe. name? He's from... He's in uh, Funny Games. Oh, yeah. Funny Games. Haven't seen that in a while. Um, but, yeah, and that's that's part of Justine's whole rejection of this constructed world of... She's apparently very good at her job and has, like, just been made artistic director or whatever it yeah, is. And... and uh, she's going to like come up with this tagline that's going to make them millions or whatever and her response is no fuck you this job is a joke and I hate you <laughs> get away from me and it, it is kind of funny of like it's set up in such a way by Montreal that she has the perfect life of like this just like gorgeous tall husband like Nordic warrior husband who's like is over the moon in love with her and wants to do anything he can to make her happy and all these friends and family that are supportive and this great big dream wedding and this perfect job with a boss who thinks the sun shines out of her ass and uh, her response is just like <laughs> fuck <laughs> all you guys sucked <laughs> uh, so that's admirable I enjoyed that part of it <laughs> yeah yeah. I guess the only aspect of her life that isn't perfect uh, is her parents yeah that's the only and it's I mean it's kind of a trope in movies where economics aren't really are rarely an issue I mean how boring would every movie be if the reality of financial situations yeah. presented itself over and over um, be no adventure because no one has any money I've <laughs> got work in the morning like. right there, or they always find a way to sort of write it in to where the character for the duration of the story doesn't really have to worry about money they're staying with their brother or brother-in-law in this case or they 
you know, in Big Daddy, he gets hit by a taxi, and so he has two hundred thousand dollars. You know, I, I'm glad that I went directly. <laughs> hey, I was gonna say that. I love that. That's the example. Um, you can see what's on the tip of my brain. You know, but, Big Daddy is just right there. Yeah, um, but the, you know, there are the rare example where it takes a realistic turn. So, like Breaking Bad, and people like it, it, this isn't the case with everyone, but it makes me angry that some people re still think about Breaking Bad as being like the show about how Walter White becomes a badass, which is, like, missing the point completely. Um, but the whole show, the whole onus of the of Walter White becoming Heisenberg is that he can't afford the insurance payments. He can't afford health care. Like, that's a very, like... And he, and he can't um, accept the, uh, the idea of charity. Yeah. He can't accept the He's not going to get cucked by his, by his rich friend. Right. Um, and so it, it's a very like a very American, very twenty first century American story to tell. Mm. Um, you know, you show that to a European today, they're like, "That's outrageous." <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and melancholy. I think that was part of it that all of those barriers are removed from these characters. Like they don't have any of those worries. Yeah, it's like this is best case scenario, and it's still this shitty. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it makes it, it to me it simultaneously made Justine's uh, melancholia m- more understandable and then more annoying at the same time like oh you have this you know great perfect life and even then you're like but I don't want it it's <laughs> that kind of thing um, but also this this idea of like that's how deep it runs that even in this context of having this kind of on paper perfect life it's still not you know not fulfilling it's not right it's not about it's not about comfort or yeah. lack or lack of it it's just it's it's much deeper than that yeah well, we've just about exhausted our board here uh, yeah. yeah we really dug deep on Wagner <laughs> Tristan and he's old. That's literally all I know about it. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very well used. Like the, the sound in general, um, especially those like stings of those those notes from Wagner, yeah, because Wagner's so like huge sounding and like triumphalist and all this stuff that yeah. when it hits, you're like, oh shit. Um, especially in those those opening uh, little vignettes that are so effective that the music is just like blaring over them and you're just kind of you can't help but be kind of sucked into it because it's designed to sound epic and have this massive scope to it another uh, movie that might be interesting to think about in terms of melancholia I believe it came out the same year and I kind of thought about it in that opening sequence where you see the planet getting destroyed uh, is the tree of life by Terrence Malick and there's that whole the scene, you know, the sequence. I guess everyone talks about is the creation of the universe. Um, and this is I, I can't remember which came first, uh, Melancholia or Tree of Life, but it seems, uh, you know, similar sort of image images uh, and types of storytelling in a way, uh, sort of switching between the deeply personal and the sort of cosmic. Uh, realities, and with but with 
absolutely divergent uh, ideologies, you know. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything past that comparison. <laughs> um, so watch Tree of Life. Yeah, it's but freaking cool. One thing we can talk about a little bit um, to wrap things up is just sort of this in the context of the podcast and like what we're, you know, the reasons we're looking at films. And we've already touched on a little bit of like the film happening on this golf course, um, all this kind of stuff. But the important thing for me for this was this kind of existential dread of like knowing that the end of the world is an eye and there's nothing you can do about it. So all you really have left is how you choose to deal with these things, to, to deal with the end. Um, and it's not a one-to-one correlation with you know climate change or catastrophe or any of these things. But it is something we talked about last week and, you know, pretty much every week before that, which is a big part of living in living and dying in the Anthropocene, uh, learning to live and die together well, as Donna Haraway would say, um, is just this idea of a lot of it is in how you choose to handle the situation, not just on a personal level, even though that's very important, but also how you choose to handle it as a, a social creature, right? And at the end you see Justine deciding that, you know, with these last few moments, I'm going to use them to make this experience uh, as bearable as I can for my sister and my nephew. And that's mm-hmm. that's going to be, like, how I choose to go out. And it's very kind of like, you know, kind of the only noble thing she does in the whole film, um, if you can even, you know, call it that, because there, there's always that kind of self-serving thing of, like, this is going to make me feel better about myself, but right. through doing this kind of thing. Um, have we talked about the plague, uh, Camus? No. On, on the podcast yet? No. I've been thinking about it a lot uh, in re- in relation to a lot of things we've said, but I think what you see in that novel is, is something I'd like to see um, in the world, not a plague... <laughs> Something but, I'd like to see, period. <laughs> well, yeah, something I'd like to see is sort of converting this uh, knowledge from uh, of impending catastrophe, converting that knowledge from dread to a kind of... Um, Orient some, something to orient a community, and I think you see that in the plague, where it starts as this kind of chaotic event, but then it becomes the thing that everyone is connected by and everyone relates to and um, allows. It's what allows empathy, um, and it it actually gives everyone a sort of venue for dignity and nobility, like like you're talking about Justine having at the end um, but of course for that to happen kind of everyone has to be not on the same page but on in the same book um, yeah it's like that. that's what that feeling you're describing is what happened for like kind of almost the worst case scenario in the United States after 9-11 is it gave you that unifying defining purpose as an American and so right and that's on a national scale and you can see this if you've ever been involved in like a natural disaster like a tornado or a yeah. hurricane you will never feel closer to your neighbors than after something really bad happening yeah. and so I'd really 
that needs to happen. You know, that people need like to... The, the end of Watchmen. <laughs> if you've ever read that. I have not. Um, anyway, you, you just... You wish people could get on the same page and, and sort of... This sounds so cliche, I understand, but kind of use this as the thing that orients the community um, to kind of start working towards uh, a a new way of life um, and again this is it's weirdly uh, I read the first chapter of the plague the other day in thinking about this and it's obviously has nothing to do with climate change in its intention but it's uh, it's the parallels are, are really there and, and I think there should probably be if there hasn't already be something written about that about yeah. lessons uh, Camus lessons for climate change yeah uh, and it's kind of like something I've, I've been thinking about a lot lately because it's it's going to be an issue uh, already kind of is an issue is this idea of this, this kind of like the narrative that's going to be sold by a lot of people in the coming decades is going to be the idea of scarce resources us versus them people are coming here to take what we need to survive so we have to defend ourselves and uh, make sure they don't come and take our water or whatever <laughs> whatever it may be and say so this uh, kind of the, these nascent uh, environmental fascists, these eco-fascists, um, which you know even the the Christchurch shooter, in his ranting manifesto, said that he was basically an eco-fascist, and he saw he sees uh, people from the Middle East as not only a danger ideologically, but they're coming here to take our resources, that kind of thing. Um, so on the one hand, you have this idea of very you know fragmented world of we have to make sure our fences are secure and we have to build the wall and we have to make sure that we keep everyone out so we can survive this sort of coming crisis, um, which is the complete wrong answer to what's happening when re in reality the only way to uh, most efficiently and sort of humanely survive it would be to do so socially and collectively, of you know, coming together and pulling resources and making sure that things are handled responsibly on a world scale as opposed to just within your nation, right? It's what happens in Children of Men, where it's like, well, the UK is okay, so why, why should we worry about the rest of the world? Keep calm and carry on, that kind of thing. Um, so when you have those, those strong nationalisms that come up and they, they make people, uh, or they help people buy into this easy narrative of what I have is mine and we have to make sure we protect what we have and keep everyone else out. It seems to me... When you, when you mention something like thinking locally or living more locally, people associate that with like isolationism. Yeah. Uh, but but what's implied, living locally, is living socially. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh, there, it's more isolated to live globally. Okay. If I, you know, get my groceries from Amazon, you know, delivered. Via uh, drone, shoot them into my window. Right. I don't have to talk to anybody. If I am living locally and I go down to the farmer's market and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but it, it just sort of hit me when you said something about collectively, socially. Pe people tend to think that they're going to be isolated because what passes for social now is like bullshit, like celebrity 
culture. You know what I'm saying? And like, yeah. uh, social media, which is not very social. Right. Yeah, it's kind of cooler. Anti-social for sure. Uh, we're the first people ever to have these thoughts. <laughs> uh, but it, but you'll actually like. Uh, I think living locally is actually more authentically social in its maybe relative uh, global isolation maybe a little bit maybe you have less time to to watch CNN or whatever uh, but what is that I mean yes yeah, stay informed but don't have any illusions about about you being informed making any fucking difference to anyone uh, you know what I'm saying if, if, if all you are is informed Good for you. <laughs> Who cares? Um, but that that information should lead lead to to action. Um, anyway, local equals more social. That was the thought. The old refrain of uh, was it think locally, act globally. Right. Right. Um, which you know it, it is kind of cliched, but I think it still holds true in a lot of senses. Um, yeah, so that's melancholia. Uh, Think locally, act globally. Until Lars von Trier. Yeah. <laughs> you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take, Lars von Trier. Uh, so be the change you wish to see in the world. Uh, next week we're going to do sort of a, the second. Uh, I'm going to call it the second installment of this uh, Anthropocene auteur theory yeah. thing. Um, the first one was Clint Eastwood and it was very like sprawling and covered a lot of territory and this one's not going to be quite so intense it's not going to have quite so many things in it um, but we're going to be talking about the Korean director Bong Joon-ho who has created two uh, films for the American audience that tie in really well to the themes of the podcast almost said of the course that's how institutionalized I am um, uh, also Matt's just Really, this is him just teaching me. I'm a class, <laughs> class. I'm so, in a class all by myself. So these are two. <laughs> uh, this, this is, a, this is the the rare, uh, the rare thing where these are two films that you have not seen, right? Yeah, I've yeah, not seen either one of these. And this is not the case. Will's seen like every movie, so it's usually the case that he's at least like heard of it. But he's heard of these, but he hasn't seen them yet. It's true. So this will be a first experience for you. I've seen both of these, but I'm, I'm going to rewatch them for this. So we're mostly going to be talking about Snowpiercer and Ocha, which uh, Ocha's the more recent one. Snowpiercer's a few years old at this point. But Chris Evans. Yeah, Chris, Captain America himself. And then Ocha has like Paul Dano and... Jake Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. a bunch of a bunch of uh, interesting actors in it. So um, we'll be mainly focusing on those two because, for one, they're in English, and that saves us a little bit of time of reading subtitles. Oh yeah, um, I don't really do subtitles. <laughs> and, and for two, they they are they sort of form this really interesting kind of two piece of this kind of uh, earth centered social vision and and how it clashes up against this. Uh, very kind of capitalistic, uh, unequal world of of people stabbing each other in the back. Um, this kind of more kind of Hobbesian view of things. So we'll be talking about those two, Bong Joon Ho, next week. Get your popcorn ready. Uh, so follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. Episode's gonna be available on SoundCloud, uh, Spotify, iTunes. 
Um, and you can just email me. I'll send it to you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come to your house and perform it for you live. Um, I will give a shout out just because uh, Will is part of another podcast uh, with with our good friend Corey. Uh, what's the podcast called? It's called Will Watches Corey's Canon. Yes. Um, it uh, comes on at 9 o'clock on CMT, <laughs> Wednesday. On CMT. <laughs> um, but no, it's another film podcast. Yeah. Uh, different in, in scope and tone. Yeah, I just, we, I, I watch a movie uh, every couple weeks that comes from Corey's sort of childhood uh it just kind of campy, yeah. not not always campy. Things like very near and dear to yeah, Corey. Yeah, things near and dear to Corey. Uh, and we, you know, like I said in an earlier podcast, I'm the I'm the kid who was watching Goodwill Hunting and Ordinary People, uh, <laughs> and Corey was watching like I think the next one I'm supposed to watch is Return of the Living Dead. Like they live. Uh, oh yeah, we did. They live. Yeah. So it's it. Think of I'd like to think of this as dinner, what we're doing, <laughs> and if you need a palate cleanser to just sort of fuck around and hear our thoughts on movies, check out Will Watches Corey's Canon because we're just just shooting the shit, uh, having a gay old time. Yeah, and you guys, you have I don't know how many episodes you have out currently. I think I it's just remember. the one. Just the one. Okay. Uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner, the runner of blades. Uh, so. That's one we could do for this podcast at some point. Maybe we'll do a crossover and see. Um, yeah. Well, you could, yeah. we could have Corey on. Yeah. So Talk, we might do that in the future. He loves that movie. So check out Will Watches Corey's Canon. Uh, check us out next time, please. Keep checking us out. Follow us on Twitter. Maybe I'll make an Instagram. We'll, we'll see. I thought I don't know what I would post. Just pictures of... Uh, Dick pics. Like different stills from Antichrist of like <laughs> bleeding dicks and stuff like that. Can't, um, you know, I had the idea. I want to end this podcast with uh, Stellan Skarsgård's uh, "God Damn It, Justine." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's my new my new uh, remix. I'll do. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll put I'll put that to be, I'll put that to beat. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, the end. Yeah. The earth is evil. We don't need to grieve for it. The earth is evil. We don't need to grieve for it. The earth is evil. We don't need to grieve for it. The earth is evil. is evil.